0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Lieutenant Commander Ali Gafari, Associate Director at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy and founder of Divine Mercy Academy. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the St. Vincent College-sponsored CLT is coming up on January 9th. Applicants to St. Vincent College can take the CLT for free. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: All right, welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the classic learning test. Uh, today, we have a very exciting guest. Ali Ghaffari is a professor at the United States Naval Academy, where he teaches ethical leadership to students and faculty at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. In 2018, Ali founded Divine Mercy Academy in Severna Park, Maryland. Ali, welcome to
2: the program. Jeremy, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Ali, there are a few people I know personally with a more fascinating personal story than yours. Uh, Can you tell our audience a bit about your background and then how you ended up going to one of the most famous prep schools in the world, Phillips Academy Andover?
2: You know, I was born to a a 16-year-old uh, mother and 18-year-old father. And uh, I was almost aborted. My In fact, my grandmother urged my mother to abort me. And uh, thankfully, my mother uh, decided to to choose life. And so uh, the first you know few decades or so of my life was pretty rough. Uh, my parents divorced. I went to live with my aunt and uncle for a while uh, while my mom was going to rehab. Uh, and then just kind of drifting off on the wrong path. A mom who loved me very much, but had some personal demons she was wrestling with and uh, he came home from work one day uh, and I was in, in high school and he had a flyer from one of his coworkers for, from Tabor Academy. And he said, Hey, what do you think about going here? I was, uh, I loved hockey and it was a big hockey player at the time. He said, you could play hockey again, that extra year of eligibility, you know, prior to college, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. I think I'd like to do that. So we did a, a, the tour of all the new England prep schools and, um, eventually landed on Phillips Academy Andover, which was, which was an experience of itself.
1: When did you get exposed to this whole world of classical education? Uh, tell us about this journey that, that you've been on uh, that led to founding Divine Mercy Academy.
2: So we're in military, uh, as you mentioned earlier. And so we travel around. We, you know, every couple of years, we're in a new school. And so we've seen a lot of schools around the country for our kids and it was here in Annapolis when we moved here about five years ago. Uh, we were first exposed to classical education. We were—I could remember the day clearly. We were—we were driving our minivan down the highway uh, to Ohio, and we were—it was a, a fall uh, day, and I was listening to Rod Dreher's um, book, um, Benedict Option, and in that he—he he talked about the school, St. Jerome's Academy, which I think is pretty familiar to most, you know, in this yeah. classical circle. And I was just blown away by their story and the truth, beauty and goodness. I said, gosh, man, I, I want that for my kids. I really want that. I wish I had it for myself. Uh, and I had a phenomenal education, but I, I really felt like I missed something with that. And I didn't want my kids to, to miss out on that as well. And so we started looking around. St. Jerome's was within driving distance, but it was really, it was almost an hour drive each way. And my wife and I talked about it and we decided it was just too far. Uh, We found a a tutorial in the area, St. Thomas Aquinas tutorial, and they were a great school, but they had a waiting list. uh, And there was just no way we'd be able to get our kids in there. Uh, But we still shadowed and we were there. And um, at the end of the day, after just being completely impressed by uh, the kids and the and the teachers and how things were run in the classroom. Uh, we a- I asked, "Is there any plan for you guys to go five days a week?" You know, and the the head of the school said, "There isn't, um, but maybe you're the person to do that." <laughs> and I took that as a uh, that maybe it was something God was telling me that I needed to do. So I spent a couple months discerning this. I went to the ICLE conference that summer. And, uh, you know, somebody who was there stepped up and said, hey, I heard you're thinking about starting a school. I'd be willing to help. And that was, that was the start of it right there.
1: So I'm interested to pick your brain about this, because it seems that in the Catholic world, you know, you talk to some folks, some high school administrators at Catholic schools, and they're not quite sure what to make of the whole classical renewal movement. Mm-hmm. Others say, no, if you're an authentically Catholic school, then you're already classical. What do you say to people who who say, Ali, what is this? What is
2: classical education? To me, classical education enables you to be a free version of yourself. And so, for me, and, and you know, I'm a convert to Catholicism, and so I'm familiar with uh, the Dynamic Catholic uh, organization, and they're always talking about becoming the best version of yourself. And so when I think about the differences between classical education and, you know, a secular education or the kind of education we in, you know, many of our Catholic schools today, I think that the goals are different. Uh, and the aim of the, that secular education the, the you know, what we tend to see in our Catholic schools today, the, the aim is good there. It's, it's to become, you know, successful in high school, to become, uh, to get into a good college, to, to, to find a good career. I think that's a good and worthy goal, Um, but when I look at classical education, I think it sets the aim so much higher to become the best version of yourself, to become a saint, to to at least be free to make the decision for yourself about which path you want to go, to give you the tools you need to ask the question why, to dig deeper, to really get a good understanding of what it is you're learning and why are you learning this? And, and what else do I need to, to learn to get that full picture for myself? And so it's unlocking that next level of education where you can really define who you are and really explore and become the best version of yourself, you know, with, with God at the center of everything. That's a whole different ballgame. And for me, that makes all the difference in the world between those two.
1: So let's go back a minute to Phillips Andover Academy. This is this is arguably one of those well-known prep schools in the world. This is is where all of the elites and their kids. I believe this is where the Kennedy kids have all gone. I think people who know maybe very little about classical education would assume, you know, that's a a New England classical school. Now now that you're in the world of classical education and this renewal movement, how how do you think back about your own academic formation at Phillips Andover?
2: Yes, Andover was quite, uh, you know. I, I mentioned before i grew up in poverty in vermont we were on government assistance all the time and um i went to i went to public school there and then showing up at a phillips academy limousine after limousines rolling up kids are just like jumping out i had a turkish <laughs> friend in and, and uh um, an Indian prince in my dormitory. I had the heir to the Goodyear fortune. I was, you know, in Glasswood, you know, was a, the brother of an NHL player. My senior year, 36 kids went to Harvard out of my class. So this was just, you know, it was so different, um, you know, from the perspective of just, just the culture of being at Andover. Uh, and then when you look at the classroom, it felt a lot more like college. You know, you had your, your schedule and it's just, it was more, I don't know, you're in your dormitories, you're, you're going to class, right? all I can say is, It felt like I was going to college. And so academically, instead of this classical, you know, this classical methodology, it just felt like I was crushed with work all the time. I was just, I had, I did work, you know, all, you know, four or five hours of homework every evening. I was just an avalanche of homework on the weekends. I was doing work all the time. And I'm grateful for that. It made me a stronger student. I did, college was easy once I stepped out of of Andover. I don't know how I'd have been prepared for a good college without having something like that. But with that said, the education that I got at Andover didn't fuel my desire to learn more, and mm-hmm. in fact, it, can, it diminished it, almost smothered it. And so, you know, all this education from the public school and to Andover, and then into I went to Coley College, for, you know, for my you know undergrad. All of that. By the time that was all done, I didn't want to crack open a book. I didn't want to learn anything after that. I was so tired. <laughs> of learning and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, in fact, I was on track to go to medical school. I was going to be a doctor, um, because I, I my family was poor growing up and my parents said, Hey, if you become a doctor, you can, you can have money and, and financial, you know, well-being, you won't be like us. Uh, and so that was the track I was on. And so I, I got to the point, where I took the MCAT, I did well on the MCAT, but I was just out of gas at that point in time. So do I really want to go to medical school? and then just the, just the mountain that was just there uh, ahead of me of, of education, I said, I don't want to do that. I am just, I am burnt out at this point in time from all of this. Uh, and, and flipping it back to the classical model, classical education is very different. It, it, it activates that curiosity, that sense of wonder, that sense of why. It fuels your desire to learn. So for me, that's what I found to be different. Even though I had a phenomenal education, Colby was great, Andover was great. Um, but. I think the way it's done, the questions that are asked, the material is very different in classical education.
1: So let's talk about your, your whole other job, because you kind of have two, two full-time jobs. You're a professor at the United States Naval Academy, uh, where you teach at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Um, tell us about, about your role there. What do, what do you do at the U.S. Naval Academy?
2: Yeah, so, uh, so I arrived at the academy uh, five years ago, and I taught... Leadership, essentially leadership one hundred and one, uh, to uh, freshmen at the Naval Academy called plebes uh, for the first year. I taught them, you know, that undergraduate class in, uh, in leadership, which is really just about trust. It's like how do you trust someone? And they had some some academic theories about leadership, but I was learning a lot after having practiced leadership out in the fleet uh, in my time in the Navy. We didn't haven't gotten to uh, spend fifteen years flying F 18s uh, for the Navy, so I've got some background, you know, as a f- frontline leader. Um, in the Navy. So coming to the Naval Academy, teaching leadership at first, you know, I wasn't sure what it was like to teach leadership in a classroom. Can you teach leadership? Uh, So, but I taught, you know, freshman leadership. I learned a lot about the topic myself. The next year I taught leadership in ethics to sophomores, uh, which we brought in the philosophers. I really liked that class more because it was the moral philosophy. We used a lot more Aristotle. Uh, We talked about Kant and and Hume, um, and um, utilitarianism, and all of these things, some really fascinating things we went into. And then I taught advanced leadership. And so I did that for, you know, some combination of those three classes over the course of three years. And then when that was concluded, I moved over to the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. And now I do leadership coaching and consulting for faculty, staff, and coaches. And so what we go in is, we'll identify uh, some areas where Good to great, the academy is a great place to be. So, I hate I don't want to say anything that makes it sound like the leadership is not great there, there isn't thing that, um, you know, it needs a lot of improvement. It's very, very good, but everyone's interested in becoming better. We focus on those things and then take them to the next level. So, that's hopefully gives you a snapshot of life of the academy.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the great joys over the past five years since launching CLT is we've met so many uh founders of schools. And, um, you know, they have poured everything into this vision, uh, their, their baby for this new school. It's not an easy thing to do. Starting a school is really difficult. That's what we consistently hear across the board. And it doesn't always go well. I mean, sometimes with a beautiful vision and an amazing faculty, even out of the gate, um, sometimes the schools fold. What is your advice uh, for, for, for leaders? A lot of the listeners we have are at new schools. Uh, what is your advice to them?
2: Yeah, you're not kidding about the difficulty of starting a school. There was there was some there was a moment that I almost I almost didn't do this. Uh, and so it was spring of the year after we we'd started in August. This was April timeframe. We had nine kids signed up for the school, and three of them pulled out. And we had one teacher and we had interviewed three headmaster candidates. They'd all turned us down after being initially very, very excited and said, this is too much work. And so there was this moment there where I just had to say, "Gosh, is this is this what God wants me to do? Uh, Do I need to press forward? Am I am I am I doing something wrong? Should I not be doing this?" Call from a wonderful woman who said, "Hey, I've got administrative background. I'm a classical art teacher, and I've got three kids. I'm really excited in your school." I said, "Thank you." And that was the just the moment where the things kind of turned. We built some momentum. God, I need 20 kids. I want 20 kids by August. We had 19 kids. Uh, this year I asked for 40. We're at 38. back in pretty pretty close with with everything we asked for, which is miraculous. Uh, but your original question was the original question was about leadership. So leadership advice, and, and I think that what I've learned from the Naval Academy and what I've um, and what I've learned you know here um, is that it's about relationships. It's about um, and it's about fidelity to God and obedience to God. And so what what I mean by uh, the relationships part is. Leadership is all about trust, right? If if I'm looking at you and you're my leader, do I, do I trust that you have my best interest at hand, you know, in mind? Do I trust that you're going to go through a wall for me? Because If I have that trust in you, I will do anything that you need me to do to make this succeed. I will give you 110% of everything that I have. And it's establishing that bond of trust in each and every one of your faculty members and then putting them in a position to succeed, to, to leverage their strengths, Uh, and then giving them the the space to just run and just be wildly successful. That's the key, the secret to leadership. With regard to fidelity, for us, you know, the way we look at things, you know, we're a, a school in the Catholic tradition. So, I wanted to put God at the focus of all these things. I think God is essentially the engine that runs this school. So we have daily rosary. We have daily mass. We pray the angels every day. Hey, if someone's grandmother is sick or someone's grandfather's passed away, we all come together as a school and we pray for them. And so when we put God at the center of it, you can't help but see, be successful. He's taking care of all of this and, and the success of the school. So we got great people and then God at the helm. And so, you know, that's a recipe for success in my mind.
1: Thank you all for your work there. I want to get into the kind of the the meat and potatoes of Divine Mercy a a bit more. Um, So you say a a classical school in the Catholic tradition. Um, What does that mean, and how would you kind of differentiate the the content, the curricular focus of Divine Mercy from kind of what's normative uh, among Catholic schools in America?
2: So I think for, for us, there are three distinctions that make us, you know, who we are. The first one is this Catholic element. And so As I mentioned before, we've been to a lot of Catholic schools around the country. And I'd say the standard Catholic school around the country, uh, they go to mass once a week uh, and they may pray the rosary, you know, once a week or once a month, something like that. And that, you know, maybe they've got the lucky enough to have uh, some nuns there or some uh, some monks or, you know, priests. uh, And that's a that's wonderful to have that. Uh, But aside from that, they have maybe a religion class or maybe, you know, God, you know, posters are on the wall. They probably have some 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 semblance of religion. But in Divine Mercy Academy, God is in everything, and I I can't even tell you how much he's in every, he's in every subject, in every class, God comes up, in the whole thing, it's just a seamless garment of just God from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave, and it's interspersed in everything, the books they're reading, our uh, theological books, you know, everything has, so one of my parents was talking to me about the reader they had and said, you know, Jim and Johnny were going to mass, right? And so even in the, the books that they're learning how to read have the faith in it. So it's just beautifully folded into every element of the school. So there's, there's that one that so is the Catholic element of where it's in the, it's in the curriculum, but also all of our teachers, all of our teachers, every single teacher and every single board member that we have, is Catholic and they're a practicing Catholic and they're passionate about their Catholic faith. And so to the end, every interaction the kids are going to have, we're not all saints. I won't say that, but I will say that we're all striving to be saints. And so they're going to get a very consistent viewpoint, a very system, uh, uh, systematic understanding of what it is to be Catholic from a bunch of different, People, but we're all aiming for the same goal. We all believe the same thing in, in the same direction. So it's very, very consistent and even across the board with regard to their experience of their faith. You know, and the teachers don't have to try to teach something they don't believe uh, because it's very—they're very much at home in, in what they have. So the Catholic identity, I'd say, is very, very strong in our school, and, and it's the, the number one priority. Our number one pri- stated priority to our parents is we want your kids to become saints. That is our goal. Saints first and foremost and scholars second. And so whenever there's a doubt, hey, do we have time for this thing? We're, we're making time for it. So if that's mass during the, every day, or if it's a speaker, we're going to bring a speaker in to help activate and, you know, ignite the, the spiritual, you know, life of our kids. We're bringing them in and we'll figure it out with the academic. That's, I think, the most distinctive one. Secondly is the, the classical curriculum. So our classical Curriculum, we've basically adopted from St. Jerome's Academy. They have a beautiful, beautiful curriculum that they've done. They've shared freely across the country. And so we leverage that. And and that, that curriculum is, I'd say, very different than what you might find in your average Catholic school around the country. And so we use that, that thing is so meaty, it's just beautiful. So that is our, that is our engine. And the third thing, which, uh, you know, which makes us distinctive is, you know, affordability. We want we don't want to say no to any family that wants to have their kids come to divine mercy academy there are a lot of great catholic families out there who've got seven eight nine ten kids you just can't afford a, you know catholic uh, tuition for that many kids and so we do everything we can to make it possible for you know any child to come to our school so those are the three things that make us distinctive
1: you know as you're speaking the word that's coming to mind is is integration Um, I, I think about, you know, my, my own experience and I I was a public school student growing up, but there was kind of this fragmentary aspect of education where you would have your history or your English or your Spanish. And, and there was nothing that brought it all together. They were just kind of random subjects. Um, and I, I think about this Chesterton quote that I've been unpacking for years now, where he says that there is a whole truth of things and that in knowing it and speaking it, we are happy. Um, I, I think it's it's crucial work that you're that you're doing, um, Ali. You, you mentioned the books and the, the books that you're reading uh, at, at Divine Mercy are very much integrated into this this focus uh, on goodness, truth, goodness, and beauty on God at the center of that. Uh, I'm interested though in the books that that you are reading uh, on your own time.
2: So right now, if you're asking me what I'm reading on my bookstand, I've got a, a biography of John Henry Newman, uh, and uh, I am reading that right now because. We actually um, have signed a contract with our Sunday Visitor to publish a book about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Catholic worldview and what he an interpretation of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, and how that integrates with uh, what was going on at his time and in his world. So that that is the cause for that. Not to mention that Newman's an amazing amazing human being. But so that's that's what I'm reading right now. Um, But I did want to tell you some some books that were really impactful for me. In my conversion, so I'll give you a little bit of a little bit of background. So, a very you know uh, intellectual individual, always did well in school, Um, and so my faith came to me through my intellect, Uh, and so it was through books that I became Catholic uh, about 15, 16 years ago. And it was actually through intellectual argumentation with somebody who was Catholic, because I didn't want to become Catholic. I I wanted to either, I I was an atheist at the time, either remain atheist, or if I wasn't going to be an atheist, I was going to go with my family and become a Methodist or, you know, some other, um, you know, um, Protestant community. Um, And so I, I was going to say, I'm going to show you that you're wrong, and I'm going to pull the rug out from under you. Uh, to, to this, this guy who was my mentor. Um, and, uh, so we argued about this stuff. We argued back and forth for months over email. Every time I got an email from him, I would be infuriated and I'd throw everything I had at him. Uh, and he'd send another just very calm and he'd use, you know, uh, the church fathers, you know, reason, all of these things, just very just calmly addressing all of my questions, concerns, everything I'd thrown at him. And at the end of that process, I said, teach me It's one of those, if you can't beat them, you know, you got to join him. So teach me. And we started with Plato and uh, Plato for me uh, and the dialogues were just, they were eye opening. So, I, you know, I was, during this time, I was just graduated from college. I'm into a couple of years in the Navy and I had just lost sight. The relativism had just seeped into every aspect of my life and I just had no clue if truth existed and where it could be found. Uh, And so reading Socrates, just his dogged pursuit of truth was just, it was just, it, it gave me encouragement and hope that it could be found, you know, and some of his dialogues kind of left me a little bit, you know, uneasy. I'm like, well, did we actually discover the meaning of the word that we started out to or not? But thankfully, we moved on from Plato and then to Aristotle and particularly his Nicomachean ethics, the physics and the metaphysics. Were so amazing, and how he was able to build up this case for God through, or at least uh, the uncaused cause, uh, in a philosophical understanding of who God was through reason, and just building block after building block after building block, and coming to this conclusion. And then from there, it was not a leap in the dark to have faith in God; it was a leap in the light to jump to where God was. And so from that point on, I was sold. I was like, Hey, I want more of this. And I, and so we went through, we read Hiller Block, who I, I love. I just liken him to his bare knuckle brawler. Uh, but I love him so much. He's so good. And then GK Chesterton, who, uh, who's, who can write a large swath that a very serious. And then He'll just throw a zinger and there. You almost fall out of your chair laughing so hard. He's so good with words. And then getting into Cardinal Newman and Tolkien uh, and then going back and rereading The Church Fathers. And all of these books uh, had such an impact on my faith and enriching my faith into, uh, to, you know, to the point where it's unshakable. Like, even if a doubt creeps in, and said, oh, but wait, you know, Aristoteles or Chesterton or Newman or whatever, all these things, The Church Fathers... And then I'm able to squash it, you know, right away. Just having that deep foundation of good reading, of good books has has done that for me.
1: That's awesome. Uh, Well, Ali, this has been a delight. We are grateful to you for your work at Divine Mercy Academy, and we hope you all continue to thrive in the months and years ahead.
2: Jeremy, thank you so much. I've enjoyed being with you today. I hope to see you again.
0: Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue.